Greetings, everyone, and welcome to On Track, our podcast series on legal issues in the post-COVID world. I'm Gil Porter, partner at Haynes & Boone and host of this series of podcasts covering the post-COVID legal landscape. Today is April 14th, and we are revisiting a topic from last year that has been of active interest, business interruption insurance claims arising from this pandemic. We are looking at some useful updates and guidance culled from our analysis of the explosion in claims nationwide in both state and federal courts. We'll look at how courts have resolved these claims and what guidance the cases offer for policyholders. To guide us through these developments, we welcome back to our podcast two of my colleagues at Haynes & Boone. Leslie Thorne is a member of our Insurance Recover Practice Group and is also co-chair of our Litigation Practice Group. Leslie splits her time between our New York and Austin offices. Leslie is joined by Adrian Azer, a partner in our Insurance Recovery Practice Group based in Washington, D.C. Adrian exclusively represents policyholders in insurance coverage matters. As always, our podcast discussion will be guided by Nathan Koppel, our head of media relations. And I'm going to turn this over to Nathan in just a moment. But first, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your counsel. That's it from now. I'll come back at the end. But Nathan, let me turn it over to you. Gil, many thanks. Leslie, Adrian, thanks for joining today. Appreciate it. Leslie, I'm going to start with you. Let's begin by looking at some of the data points that we've gathered regarding uh, COVID-19 business interruption rulings. I think over the past year, there have been more than 1,500 cases filed throughout the U.S. and, and courts, and I think it was 35 states. Curious, what are some of the, the data points that stick out in your mind? Well, I think, as you mentioned, there's just been an absolute avalanche of these claims, and they're continuing to come in um, even today. And so I think we're going to continue to see this for quite some time. Um, All that being said, even though all of this goes back a year, we're fairly early on in the litigation process. And so it's important as we sort of talk through these things to think about Um, how it has changed significantly over time and will continue to shift, especially as we get more appellate rulings. So far, what we're seeing in terms of early rulings are rulings on motions to dismiss. And those sort of go any number of ways, but you see a pretty significant split between what is happening in the federal courts and what is happening in the state courts. Um, In state courts, when you have carriers filing these motions to dismiss, you're looking at sort of a 50-50 proposition. Um, A lot of of the motions are getting denied. A lot of them are getting granted. And there are also a not insignificant number of courts that are, you know, sending plaintiff policyholders back to replead. In federal court, you have sort of a a different situation, which is that over 75% so far of the cases are um, getting dismissed or at least the pleadings are found to be insignificant and the policyholders are are sent back home to replead. Um, One of the other splits you see is also in policies containing 
virus exclusions versus policies that don't contain those exclusions. Um, I would be remiss if I left the impression that there are only two kinds of policies, those that have virus exclusions and those that don't. You see a lot of different kinds of policies. And when you dig into the cases themselves, the language, even of the exclusions themselves, can be you know, quite different from policy to policy. But overall, I think it's fair to say um, that policies that don't have virus exclusions have generally fared better than policies with virus exclusions. Although even then, uh, you do see courts denying motions to dismiss uh, when it comes to policies that have the virus exclusion or some version of it. So I don't want to leave the impression that, you know, a policyholder is out of luck if it has a virus exclusion. But as you might expect, uh, in some jurisdictions, it can be a, a tougher road to home. And I know we'll talk a little bit later about the, the virus exclusions. And uh, uh, what about motion for summary judgment data? What, what, what are the trend lines there? There's a lot less of that generally because motions for summary judgment come farther down the timeline than motions to dismiss that are filed right off the bat. Um, in terms of what we're seeing in the numbers in both state and federal court, um, you're seeing more of a 50-50 proposition um, in terms of your chances of getting through to through with those. Um, although there have been policyholder MSJs granted in a number of state courts. Um, so that if you can make it to that stage, uh, policyholders tend to fare better. Um, but again, it's really all over the lot. I mean, Adrian, if we're to look at this broadly, it seems like maybe insurers have a slight, slight leg up here. Is, is that fair? Yeah. So Nathan, I want to add on to one thing that, that Leslie said, which is, um, you know, with regard to MSJs, it really is jurisdiction specific. You're seeing judges even down the hall from each other kind of conflicting with each other as to rulings. So going to Leslie's point about, you know, it has to be the judge, it has to be the jurisdiction. You are seeing certain venues that are better. Now going to your direct question are, do insurers have the clear advantage? I would say no. Um, and the reason that I say that is because of a lot of the cases that were filed very early had two issues that were prevalent. First, they were typically filed by plaintiff's attorneys. The plaintiff's bar took significant notice of the potential claims under this insurance, and they all started becoming effectively insurance recovery lawyers, despite the fact that they didn't have uh, expertise in that area. And the result of that is they brought every claim they could, regardless of strengths or weaknesses as to the policies and or the facts surrounding the claim. So a large volume of claims that were first presented were claims that included virus exclusions. Now, that's not a complete bar to those claims, but it certainly makes it more difficult. And a lot of the success that the insurers received was because of those virus exclusions. A lot of courts said, hey, look, I'm going to rule against you because at the end of the day, this has a virus exclusion with the problem being they also sometimes made dicta on the business interruption component, i.e. whether um, COVID-19 can cause business interruption. I think as you look at the data now, a lot more large firms that have 
specific insurance recovery expertise are getting into the fray on behalf of larger corporate clients. And what they're doing is they're learning from the mistakes of the plaintiff's bar, and they're looking at the decisions that have been filed and finding ways to avoid the same outcomes. So what I tell you is, while the data is skewed towards the insurers at this point, I think where you look at cases where there is no virus exclusion and or larger firms are looking at specific jurisdictions and making pleadings, the data is actually much more even. And why has federal courts, at least so far, proven less hospitable to policyholders? Yeah, so I think Leslie, again, touched on this in her initial remarks. A common adage within the policyholder recovery world is that state courts are always going to be more friendly than federal courts. And that's probably for a few reasons. One is state courts were more vested within the community. They understand the impact of corporations within their within their communities. Um so in large part, those state court judges are going to be more amenable to looking after their citizens in some ways. Now, that's not to say that they're not impartial, but they certainly have more of a view towards granting coverage, which is consistent with the state bar. Federal courts, on the other hand, and again, this is not monolithic. A lot of federal judges are, are more strict constructionists, and they will not see kind of some of the ambiguities that may exist within the policy forms. There are a few notable exceptions. One significant exception is actually Missouri. A Missouri federal judge was the first court to actually allow a policyholder to get past the motion to dismiss based upon COVID-19 causing loss. So again, I think, I think overall, it's a correct statement to say that the federal courts are probably more restrictive than the state courts. But even within that, there are pockets of federal judges in specific jurisdictions that have allowed these cases to go forward. Now, we've alluded to, to some of the, the reasons or what, what some of the factors are that, that favor policyholders in these cases when they've had success. But, but Leslie, let's drill down a little bit deeper here. And if you could identify some of the factors that, that are likeliest to determine you know, whether policyholders can succeed with these claims. Well, we may have let the cat out of the bag on that one, but forum is key and it just can't be overstated. Um, Like Adrian said, you're seeing judges down the hall from each other come to absolutely conflicting um, conclusions on these issues. And so it's really critical when filing these now that we have some information on how uh, different jurisdictions are looking, how different judges are looking at these things to do a lot of due diligence to make sure that you are filing in the best place for you. And, you know, one of the things that you often run into is falling back on sort of old assumptions about pro policyholder um, jurisdictions or pro insurer jurisdictions. And some of those are not really holding true when it comes to COVID. Like, for instance, uh, California, generally seen as a pro-policy holder place to file. But that has not been the case with COVID. They have been um, pretty anti-policy holder in most of their decisions. Um, Whereas in, say, Ohio, um, the majority of decisions are coming out in favor of the policy holder, but not all of them. And so it's really important to look at the particular court you're filing in 
if it's a situation where you're going to get a random draw of a judge, you want to look at all of the judges um, within that court and how they are ruling on these things to try to sort of figure out what your chances are going to be, because that's going to really control here. Um, And then one additional word on sort of the state versus federal court. One of the reasons that policyholders may be faring a little bit better in some state courts when it comes to motions to dismiss are that um, getting a case dismissed in federal court is a pretty straightforward uh, proposition under 12b6. Um, Some states, like New York, have a 12b6 style motion to dismiss as well. Texas does not. Texas has an ability to move to dismiss immediately, um, but it's not used all that often, mainly because uh, the loser has to pay fees of the winner. And also, it's a pretty tough standard. Um, It's harder than a 12B6 standard. It's not just a failure to state a claim standard. It's more akin to needing to show that on the face of the pleading itself, it would be absolutely clear under Texas law that you could not prevail, which is a tough standard to me. And so that can also play into... Um, likelihood of success early on, as well as farther down the line. So it's important to look at your policy, figure out all the options for places you could file and really do your diligence um, there. I think the other thing that it's important to work through is how to frame your claim. The two main issues that are coming up in these cases are whether there has been a physical loss and whether a virus exclusion applies. There are also a lot of other sort of side issues, but mainly, you know, 90% of the time, that's what you're looking at. So you want to look at your policy, whether you have a virus exclusion, whether the carrier has pled some other exclusion, like a pollution exclusion or something like that. Look at the actual facts on the ground, what happened to the policyholder. For instance, in Some situations, there was never any virus detected on the premises, and the loss of business was due to government shutdowns or a general societal fear that kept people from coming to a workplace, things like that. And you want to look at both your policy and the specific facts on the ground and make sure that you're tailoring your allegations to fit within the policy language that you have. Taking into account whether you have civil authority coverage, what that civil authority coverage requires. Um, For instance, some civil authority coverage says it will uh, cover business losses if there's a physical loss within a certain uh, county or within a certain radius of the business, things like that. It's important to really um, understand those those provisions and tailor your allegations to those. Um, It's also important, I mentioned briefly, the pollution exclusion. That has not yet become a real player in this discussion, although there are a few cases touching on whether or not a pollution policy would cover COVID-related losses or whether pollution exclusions would exclude them. And so it's important in understanding um, 
the case law where you are to see how that how that may affect you as well. Because, um, for instance, you know most property policies have some sort of pollution exclusion, although the the wording in those can differ significantly. And I would think when there's so many factors leading to businesses to business interruption, I would think policyholders and their lawyers have some latitude to frame the loss in a way that's most advantageous to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's a, a lot of times the mistakes you see are lawyers just not really understanding what the policy covers and using loose language that may not even be entirely accurate that creates headaches for them. So it's important to understand the details um, before you before you get on file. Well, thanks for that. Adrian, I was going to ask you if you could take uh, walk us through some of the more well-reasoned rulings that you've reviewed so far and, and, and what lessons you think can be drawn from those rulings. Yeah, Nathan. So I think there, there's a couple aspects of all the pro-policyholder rulings that are the same. Um, and it really kind of starts with what Leslie was talking about is how you frame your claim. What we have seen and the lessons we've learned and what kind of major law firms are learning from prior rulings is that you need to be able to plead either the presence of the virus via employee testing or employee infection rates, or in the alternative, pleading ubiquity of the virus and therefore its presence on your property. So the claims that, and the per policyholder decisions that we see that have been favorable have basically said, look, there is the probability that the virus was on the premises. The virus causes loss, right? Loss of use, loss of ability to maintain it. And therefore, we're going to allow these claims to proceed. I think as Leslie mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, right? A lot of the rulings are in the motion to dismiss context. Um, and so those fundamental pleading aspects, right? Pleading either presence or ubiquity is a key element to a lot of these rulings. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there are a few rulings on summary judgment for policyholders. Those are obviously up on appeal, but they, they exist. And for those, the most prevalent one is, is one out of North Carolina, where the court really went through uh, the criteria for business interruption losses. And in that jurisdiction, the court basically said, like, look, we determine loss of use is sufficient. Now, what else the court did, which was really interesting, is it went through different aspects of the policy, like the pollution exclusion. And with regard to the pollution exclusion, what the court said is that this exclusion is only intended to prohibit or preclude or exclude environmental losses. It was not ever intended to apply to viruses and insurers' efforts to extend the pollution exclusion to viruses basically was unfounded. With regard to civil authority coverage, that's somewhat is synonymous with loss of use, right? Most policyholders will argue that the loss of use is caused by the civil authority orders. So courts typically treat them that way. But I think fundamentally where, where you see the good decisions, the policyholders have helped the courts reach those decisions by pleading facts in their complaints that allow the court to say, yes, I'm going to find the, the virus was present on the premises and therefore created damage or loss to the premises. And again, those have mainly been in the motion to dismiss or, or motion for summary judgment context. 
Correct. No, I, we have not seen a, a trial yet of COVID-19. I don't think anyone has reached a jury trial. Most of the time, it's it's motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgment. And worth noting, again, the rulings on summary judgment are going up on appeal. And I think Leslie's going to discuss kind of what the status of that is. Well, yeah, I'll turn it over to you, Leslie. What is going on in the appellate courts? I think you started by saying there's been relatively little activity at that level so far. Yeah, not a whole lot yet. I mean, there are a number of appeals filed, but not a whole lot have moved um, meaningfully forward yet. Um, With a couple of exceptions, the 11th Circuit um, is currently considering an appeal by a policyholder um, uh, of a district court opinion granting a motion to dismiss on a finding that there was no physical loss. Um, There's also on... I guess it was today, uh, the Eighth Circuit heard uh, another appeal by a dental clinic from Iowa um, on these issues. So we don't have any opinions yet. And one thing that we're on the lookout for is whether some of these federal courts certify these issues to the state's highest court. Uh, You often see that when you're looking at novel issues this, these are obviously issues that are replicated all over the country, are decided under state law. And so I think we'll probably see some of these federal courts certify them to uh, the state's highest court, which generally speaking, I think is going to be better for policyholders. And so I think you'll see a lot of policyholders ask for the question to be certified to the state's highest court, depending on which state it is, of course. Um, but I think that's going to give us a lot more guidance when it comes to state court opinions. A lot of the opinions that have come down are pretty lean on reasoning some without any at all. In a lot of states, there's no obligation for uh, trial judges to issue any kind of reasoned opinion. They can just grant a motion or deny a motion. And so you don't really understand what the reasoning is. Um, other states do have the obligation to issue a reasoned opinion, even at the trial court level. And obviously, federal district judges do, but you end up seeing uh, much more significant analysis when it gets to appeals. So I think as those start to come out, we're going to have a much better idea about whether this is going to flip one way or the other or whether you're going to see a true split between states um, between states that find that the virus exclusion doesn't apply or that uh, COVID-related losses are physical losses um, and those that don't. So stay tuned. And this could play out, I would think, over months, years, in terms of just the appellate and jurisprudence on this? Years, I would say. I think... We'll start seeing opinions in the coming months, within six months, I'm, I would expect. Um, but I don't think we'll know the full shape of it and how things are really playing out for years. Adrian, what do you think? No, I think, Leslie, you're right. I think you're not going to see opinions for the next six months. And I think you're going to have to see kind of where they land. I, I think the federal courts are going to have to issue reasoned opinions And it's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening if a federal appellate court issues an opinion, yet the state court ultimately issues a differing opinion. Um, So even if the appellate courts are going to rule, if the state highest courts get 
different views of how the claim should be adjudicated, that'll create an interesting dynamic. I'm afraid this is so fast evolving. You both bought yourself another ticket to the on-track podcast in, in six months or a year to update us on where, on where things stand. Uh, thanks, Adrian. Leslie, any other thoughts before we sign off? Yeah, the only thing I tell policyholders is, especially if they're looking to file claims now, because a lot of policies have statute of limitations bars, is policyholders really should come up with a strategy, right? Like we talked about in this case, pick the right forum, learn from the past, look at the pleadings that have succeeded and really utilize those. I think there needs to be a very defined strategy if a policyholder is going to commence suit at this time and they need to learn from the mistakes of others. Leslie, what are your thoughts? I agree. There's a lot out there, a lot of resources that policyholders looking to file can look to um, to help guide them on a pathway to success. So do your due diligence, but you still got a shot. Great. Well, thanks again. Really appreciate this. And with that, Gil, I'm going to kick it back to you. Wonderful. Thank you, Leslie and Adrian. And of course, Nathan, as always, for guiding our conversation. Uh, As you say, Nathan, this is clearly an area where we're going to see more developments. And I look forward to our next occasion to chat about this topic. And thank you to our listeners for joining our podcast. If you're interested in more information on this topic, you can look at a a more detailed conversation in a webinar presentation that's available at the COVID page on our website. So please take a look at that and other uh, materials that we have available for your review there. Our next webinar and podcast topic will focus on the Trademark Modernization Act, a significant update to trademark practice. We look forward to visiting with you then, and until then, be well and stay safe.